I ask you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. When you find Luke chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 26. I want to ask you to stand with me as we honor God through the reading of His Word. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. This is a story that hopefully is very familiar to all of us. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and it will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that as we open your word together, that you would speak clearly through it. Lord, that we would hear your voice this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, we were downtown at a parade. And uh, it was a really nice parade. I mean, as far as parades go, I don't know if you're a parade kind of person. But it was a pretty nice parade. I mean, they had all of the normal things that you would have at a parade. They had, they had lots, of, uh, lots of Shriner fellows with the little bitty cars that go rounds in circles, and that's always entertaining to watch. They had, they had endless, it seemed, endless number of Corvettes and other kinds of cars, sports cars with little placards on them telling them, you know, why they got to be in the parade. There was, there was even a herd of Chick-fil-A cows that kind of went down the street. I mean, it was entertaining. It was a, it was a good one. There was bands, but it wasn't the parade so much that made the impression on the people around us. When the parade was over, we began to walk back to our car, and as we were walking back to our car, we heard behind us people gasping. <gasps> and then people began to scuttle away, and, and even one person yelped. And I was like, what in the world is happening behind me? So I turned around, and, and I looked, and I saw this couple that was walking down the sidewalk with everyone else, and they were walking as if, you know, everything was fine with the world. There was no problems whatsoever. And everybody else around them was beginning to run away from them. And as I looked at them, I noticed that they had two incredibly large boa constrictors coiled around them. And I thought, wow. For one, that's crazy, 
right? Now, I know that some of you might be people who like snakes, but, but it has always seemed foolish to me to allow a snake that's primary goal in life is to squeeze things to death to allow that snake then to coil himself around your neck. It just seems like too much of a temptation for the snake, doesn't it? Now, however you feel about snakes, I feel like that's probably just really stupid to do in life. It's just a, it's a poor choice in life. But regardless of whether or not you like snakes, the people were freaked out around them. Now, do you think that, that, that they were freaked out? Do you think that if, uh, if I turned around and, and hear this couple, they were, you know, walking hand in hand and they had like a pair of hamsters with them, that people would have been like, oh, run away, hamsters, run away. No, no, of course not. Nobody's scared of hamsters. If you are, you need help, right? Nobody's scared of puppies. Why is it that snakes seem to drive fear into the heart of people? Well, our problem with snakes stretches back a long time. Snakes, on the one hand, I mean, they look sinister, right? They look like they're up to no good all the time. Their unblinking eyes seem to bore into your soul, you know. But that feeling of fear that kind of conjures up inside of us, it stretches back thousands of years. I mean, since the beginning of the end, people have been unsuccessfully waging war against a serpent. A serpent that we find in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. We're fearful of this serpent's power, aren't we? Easily steered off the path toward destruction, toward problems, toward temptation. And when he rears his head, we cower oftentimes because we feel like we're powerless to fight against him, to fight against his temptations. We feel weak. We feel sometimes like we're unable to wrestle him to the ground and subdue him as we ought to. And there's a reason that we feel that way. Because it's true. Martin Luther was right in his wonderful hymn. He said about the devil that his craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But in the text that we read here this morning, something different is happening. An angel shows up and this girl Here's the voice of the Lord spoken through the angel Gabriel, and he calls upon her to take up the work of Eve that we find in the very first Bible story. The virgin birth is not some sweet little Christmas story. It's the place of cosmic battle. That's what we find. If we truly understand what is happening in this story, it's a scary event that is taking place in Luke chapter 1. Because in the uterus of this Middle Eastern girl, God, the one who has created all things, is declaring war upon the kingdom of Satan. That is what's happening. You remember back in the book of Genesis, in the very beginning, God created the world in absolute perfection. Everything was made good. Everything was completely right. He made the man and the woman in his own image, and he made them so that they would rule on earth. They were to be the vice regents. They were to be the the king and queen who would look after all of the things that God had created. The man and the woman were supposed to have dominion over every single beast of the field, it says. But Adam and Eve 
ignored God. They disobeyed God and listened to another voice. They listened to the voice of a dragon. Now it's plain that when you look back at that story and they're found out for disregarding God's word, they're scared to death because they know that everything is about to drastically change in their lives. They're fearful. You know that feeling, that pain, that you, you know that something is about to be said that you know is going to be bad. It's kind of like when the doctor walks in the office and he walks in and he's not looking at you in the eye. He's not looking at you and he's got his hands on his hip and he's got that paper in his hand. And you know that whatever's going to come next is not going to be good. It's that kind of experience. They know what is about to be said is going to be bad. So God begins by cursing the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Interesting, in that, in that first curse, we find this glimmer of hope, a promise God was not just going to completely eradicate them right on the spot, not completely smash them and destroy them for disobeying him, the king who made everything. Instead, what does he do? He gives them a promise. And as the story goes on, Adam calls his wife Eve. Now, what does Eve mean? Eve means life giver. Even in the, in the time that it takes Adam to think about his wife and to give her this name, he is pledging himself to what it is that God has promised. He's believing that what God has said will come to fruition through his wife. And so when Cain is born, Eve mistakenly hopes that Cain will be the one who takes the serpent out to the field and crushes his head and smashes it into the dirt. But instead, what does Cain do? Cain takes his little brother, and he smashes his head into the dirt. He follows after the serpent. And throughout this Old Testament narrative, we find this, this reoccurring theme that there's supposed to be this one who's going to come, this one who will, who will stand up and smash the serpent's power and restore the things back to God. And so over and over, a child is born, this child looks as though he might be this skull-crushing seed of the woman, but every single time, there's failure. Seth, Noah, Noah's father, Lamech, refers back to the curse. He hopes that, that Noah is going to be the one who brings about rest for everyone. But Noah doesn't. We think back even to stories like Moses, David, all of them looking as though they might be the one. But then they mess everything up. The men crumble before the snake's temptation. They're weak and vulnerable, easily led into rebellion. And so from this lush green garden, we come to this quaint little village called Nazareth in the hill country of Galilee, and an angel speaks. And he has the same message that was spoken to Eve, only now it's all going to come true. The angel Gabriel is sent from God to speak to this young girl by the name of Mary. Now, Mary was probably a teenager. She's not, uh, not probably more than 15 years old, maybe a little bit older. But she's of marriable age at that particular time in history. And she was betrothed. She was engaged to a man named Joseph. 
And they were to be married, and they weren't married yet, and so she was still a virgin. And Mary is immediately troubled by the angel's words. He comes to her, and he says to her, the Lord is with you. How many of you would be troubled by that statement? Probably not, right? In fact, we'd be like, oh, good, yeah. Well, I hope so, yeah. Not many of us would be troubled by those words, but, but here it says that Mary was troubled. The Lord is with you. We constantly hear the, the phrase that God is with us, that, that Jesus will never forsake us. He's promised us that. And so when we hear that phrase, it's not something that would make us concerned or drive fear into our hearts. But for Mary, it does. She understood the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, over and over, this phrase is used, and it usually is used to refer to warriors who are going into battle. So as they're about to enter into battle, someone comes to them and says, the Lord is with you. And so they have great confidence to enter into the battlefield, knowing that the strong arm of the Lord is there to protect them. And here is this young woman, and she's beginning to think, well, what kind of battle am I about to enter into? Of course she's troubled. In those words of greeting, she hears the battle cry of Satan. The desire of Satan to destroy her, to destroy the one whom she will give birth to. That scream of a dragon echoing through the trees that are in the Galilean countryside. And now she's beginning to understand what Messiah and his arrival is going to mean. The revelation of John gives us a, a startling picture of these events. In Revelation chapter 12, a woman who symbolizes Israel and in some ways symbolizes Mary is crying out because she's in the throes of labor and she's staring into the yellow eyes of this gigantic, seething, satanic reptile. And it says this, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and, on heads, and, heads, and had seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This ancient serpent that we find here, he has not grown weary of the fight. He awaits the inevitable plan. He, he's watched century after century roll by as humanity continually breaks the covenant of God. And he knew that the only possible solution would be for God to send someone that was just more than human. Now notice the difference between the fallen angel in the garden and the angel Gabriel in the hills of Galilee. When Satan comes to Eve in the garden, is he scary? No. Does he frighten her? No, not at all. He doesn't take her breath away. He doesn't cause her to stop and step back. There's this really comfortable, strange, be it, conversation with a snake. 
And that conversation leads us all to death. So friends, don't think that when Satan comes to tempt you, that he will show himself as being that bloodthirsty dragon. He's not going to show himself as being a bloodthirsty dragon when he comes to tempt you. Instead, he'll come to you and he will be tender with you. He will be gentle with you. His words will be satisfying. They will be encouraging to you. He will say exactly what your flesh wants to hear. You will be like a cow that is being led down to the slaughterhouse. Completely unaware of the death that is about to overtake you. He'll tell you lies like this. God doesn't expect you to forgive that person. That person really hurts you. They need to be really sorry before you can extend any kind of forgiveness to them. God is more concerned that you be happy rather than whether or not you be holy. Sure, surely, surely he wouldn't care if you, if you dated this person even though they're not a believer, even though they have no reason to be in your life. He wants you to be happy. I mean, this person makes you laugh. God doesn't want you to be lonely, does he? Or... Nobody else is dealing with this sin. If you told people about the struggle that you have, they will walk away from you. Nobody want to be your friend. Nobody wanted you to be in their church. Everybody would look at you and they would talk about you behind your back. It's best to just keep that to yourself. It's not that big of a deal. In fact, nobody even is involved in this sin. It's just for you. Satan spoke gentle lies. But notice how Gabriel speaks. He's honest with her. He's up front with her. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is with you. Friends, do you see the connection between these two stories that we find in the Scripture? An ancient promise was made in the Garden of Eden, and now it is coming to fulfillment here in this Middle Eastern teenager. I want you to notice two things. First one is this, because Jesus became like us, he is able to save us. Because Jesus became like us, he is able to save us. We serve a God who always keeps his promises, always. He never falters, he's always faithful. And it was necessary that Jesus be born of a woman. Why? Why would he need to be born of a woman? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 2, he says, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So because Christ has put on flesh and become a man, he can identify with your struggles He identifies with every single struggle that you go through. You're not alone. Your God doesn't look at you and say, why do you act that way? He knows the human heart. The Lord Jesus is a man. He understands the temptation to sin. He understands emotion. He understands passion. He understands love. He understands all of the things that we experience. He identifies with you. If you struggle with pride, thinking that you're the only person at your job who can do the things that you do, or if every time you go to the mall, you you wrestle with this nasty critter called greed inside your heart, 
Or you lust and nobody knows about it. Or you're angry, you're bitter at people, family members. Or you don't tell the truth always. Some of you do that, don't you? Yeah. And what do you say normally when somebody comes up to you and says, you can't do that. Well, I'm only human. It happens, you know. I'm just human. But you know what? Jesus can say the same thing. Well, I'm human. I'm human. But he is the perfect human. He's the one who's never done anything wrong. He identifies with our struggles and he helps us with our weaknesses. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Because he, because he took on flesh and he was made like us, he can then now stand in our place and mediate between us and God. He can give to us grace upon grace instead of God's wrath. If we'll trust in him. He identifies with us perfectly. But notice also that God always keeps his word. All of this stretches back to the promise. The second reason that Jesus is born of a woman is that God always keeps his word. It's funny how parenthood changes your perspective on certain things, isn't it? Some of you who are parents know this. I remember as a child, one of my favorite things to do, you remember that game Operation well, that game operation was, I mean, it was awesome. It's like the best thing in the world, as long as the batteries were working, right? You had these little metal tweezers, and you would take the tweezers, and you would begin to, to rummage around inside Fred's body, trying to pull out his heart, trying to pull out his bread basket, or trying to pull out his funny bone, or his, you know, butterflies in his stomach, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. This guy had problems. You're trying to pull these things out, and I remember that more often than not what is happening is the buzzer is going off, right? So now as a parent, someone, you know, God bless them, gave us that game. And now in our house, when it is played, all we hear is the buzzer. Fred continually dies every day on the operating table. But I remember thinking, wow, this is a great game, teaching really good truths about medication and surgery and so on. That's not true, but... I remember loving that game and thinking, wow, you know, I can, I can do this. You know, I'm, I'm reaching in here, I'm pulling out his heart, I'm doing all this stuff. And the truth is, I never could do it right. And even now as an adult, I'm not the best. I mean, I do okay with, you know, operation. But I still hit the buzzer every now and then. The problem is, I'm not perfect. I can't do it. I can't perform the kind of surgery on myself that I need to. Now imagine with me if you were to walk into the, the, the surgeon's office and you were supposed to be having open heart surgery that day. It was going to be an important surgery because if you didn't have it, you were going to die. And, and as you walked into this office and he began to take you back into the surgery room, the doctor, he kind of hands you the, the scalpel and all of the awful cutting stuff that you have to get through to get to the heart. And he says, okay, here we're going to take this mirror and we're going to put it right here. We're going to set it up so you can watch. And you're going to have to do this all on your own. Okay? So, you know, just remember things in a mirror are backwards. But you're going to have to open yourself up. And then you're going to have to do all of the surgery stuff yourself. How many of you would be okay with that? I don't think so. Right? That'd be crazy to do that. Now, why in the world would we think that surgery 
on an invisible heart would be hard or easier than surgery on a heart we could see. Do you think that you can change your own heart? Do you think you can alter the things that are going on inside you, that you can make yourself better, that you can make yourself clean and, and presentable to God? It's much more difficult to do that than it would be to perform physical heart surgery on yourself. Friends, God is the one who's given to us a promise that he will come and that he will restore us, he will give us new hearts. That's what we find in the gospel. And that is the reason that Jesus has come, so that he could give you a new heart, that he could replace that old stony heart and give you a heart that beats for him. God has fulfilled that promise by sending Jesus. So the second principle, because this battle exists, you must decide to whom you will listen. Are you going to listen to the serpent? Are you going to listen to God? God is drawing the battle lines here in this little village. He's restarting the human race. And this baby, a new race of people are going to come forth. Christmas is more about cosmic battle than it is about eggnog and little drummer boy. There is no tiny Tim saying, God bless us, one and all. But instead, there is a God casting down the works of Satan, destroying the works of the devil. And he's drawing a line in the sand for all of us. Either you will side with the serpent, or you will side with the seed of the woman. If you side with the serpent, the truth is, your life probably isn't going to change that much. You remember how the serpent operates, right? He woos you gently, tenderly, affectionately, desiring to make everything comfortable for you so that you can continue to walk down this wide path that ends in destruction. Eventually you'll wake up with a stench of death upon your clothes, but now he just simply woos you, talks sweetly to you. But notice what the angel says about the baby. Siding with the serpent doesn't look very good in the end. Look what he says there in verse 32, down to verse 33. He says, this baby, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This baby that Mary was going to give birth to, this baby will be a king. All of the promises of a king ring true in Jesus Christ. He will be the one who sits on the throne of David forever. His kingdom will never end and he will squash the devil completely. And all of those who side with him, he will throw them down, these principalities and powers, and he will break off their powerful arms. He's a conquering king. He's coming to crush. He's coming to throw down. There's only one being in the world who can, who can rule the entire universe. Only one. God. Only God can rule the universe. And the one who is to be born here is called the Son of God. And this baby that Mary is going to carry and give birth to will not be a normal baby. He will be called the Son of God. Jesus is not going to be a 
normal baby in the sense that he has a human father and a a human mother. He'll be different than every other little boy. Why? Because he won't have a human father. That's why. Verse 35, look at what he says. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, Mary just has a question. She says, how in the world is this going to happen? I'm not married. I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. I've never had a relationship like that. How is this going to happen? And Gabriel says, it's not going to happen the way that you think it's going to happen. There's something more powerful at work here than than normal human reproduction. God is restarting the human race. He's, He's using this woman as a place of cosmic recreation. That's what's happening here in Galilee. So just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters at creation and breathed life into dead clay, so the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow Mary. The word overshadow that's being used here is is like the word cloud or, or covering. And so just in the same way that Yahweh came upon Mount Sinai and covered Mount Sinai with His glory as with a cloud... And, and then begins dwelling among his people. Here we find in this text, God comes down in a cloud and covers this one, Mary, and there he implants his eternal word into her womb so that he might dwell with his people again. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4, he says, when the fullness of time had come, this is what we are finding right here, The fullness of time has come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, the calling of Mary and the birth of Jesus is not some insignificant little celebration that we have once a year, the sweet little story that we tell our children and we sing about stables and donkeys. It's not something like that. At the heart of this story is the triumph of Christ over sin, over Satan, over the grave. Matthew says it in this way in his gospel. He says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. So you can't look at this as being, this is God's, you know, plan A didn't really work out for God. God really intended for everybody to get on board in Israel. He really wanted this to happen with Abraham and and then Moses and the people just kept messing up and then eventually exile happened. And so here we get to the New Testament. It's plan B, here we'll send Jesus. That was never plan B. Jesus was always plan A. Everything from the very beginning of time has been pointed toward Christ. He is the one that finds summation of all things. Peter writes and says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. God planned this. At the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, he planned Jesus to come. And after Jesus is born, the satanic powers go crazy. 
Hyperdrive, trying to defeat God's plan. So, so Satan begins to influence King Herod, and Herod sends out warriors to go and destroy and murder all the little boys Jesus' age. But all of it was to no avail because God had planned. God's promise to Eve had come to pass. The Son of God had come. And we have to remind ourselves of the gravity of Christmas, don't we? It's so easy to become influenced by the things around us. We begin to think about all of these little elf people. We begin to think about Santa Claus. We begin to think about pretty trees. We begin to think about silver bells. We begin to think about Bing Crosby and eggnog and all of the stuff that goes on with Christmas here in the States. And if we think about that as Christmas and we fail to remember that Christmas is a cosmic battle, Christmas is the story of how God is restoring all things to himself through Jesus Christ. Friends, our Christmas will be hollow. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize now, maybe even for the first time, that you've actually sided with the serpent in your life. You've always trusted in yourself. You've always listened to the lies of the enemy that you can do whatever you want to do with your life. It's your life. Do what you want with it. You can spend your money the way that you want to spend it. You can watch the things that you want to watch. You can covet your friend's wealth. You can hate your mom and dad if you want to. You can do whatever you want to make yourself happy. After all, God wants you to be happy. Friends, that's the same lie that the dragon told Eve. You can be your own God. Friends, you have an opportunity today to abandon this serpent king and follow the king who will reign forever on God's throne. See, all of us at one time or another were enemies of God. That's what the scriptures say. We're enemies of God. We did what we wanted to do. We did whatever was right in our own eyes. And our sin became a barrier between us and God. And this baby that we find here in the text, this baby is the one who has come. He's arrived so that we can have life, so that we can be spared the wrath of God, so that we can have eternal life through his name, the name of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Friends, will you pledge your allegiance to this one this morning? Away from your sin and commit your life to it. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're a Christian, but it's this continual battle of losing over temptation and sin. For you, Christmas time is just a time of frustration because it reminds you of your inadequacies. It reminds you of the, the broken relationships that you have. It reminds you of your need for stuff and going to the mall and greed and lust and envy and all of those things continually haunt you. Friends, we're all worshipers. Even the people that don't come to church are worshipers. All of us are worshipers. Idol worship has not ended. Our idols just look different than they used to. They, 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 they look like designer clothes. They look like iPads. Our temples don't have altars for blood sacrifice anymore, but, but, but they have cash registers now. They have coffee shops. John Calvin called the human heart an idol-making factory. Our idols are those things in our life that give us meaning. If we were to take those things away, we would, we would not enjoy life to the fullest. What is it in your life 
that determines your meaning, that determines your faithfulness? Is it the stability of your job? Is it the consistency of a relationship that you have? Is it your children? Is it your spouse? What is it that is the idol? What is it that you worship? Think about that at this time of year. Paul tells us that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Do you hear the voices today? Do you hear him calling? Make sure you listen to the right voice. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you'd help us to see clearly at this time of year. So very easy to become distracted by cultural Christmas. Father, I pray that you would help us to be Christians who are aware of the cosmic battle that we are in. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us for the task of living holy lives, that we would not chase after every little idol, Lord, that we would chase after Christ, that we would seek him. I pray, Father, that you would give us Strength this morning to respond to your voice. That we would hear your voice, Lord. That we would turn from our sin. That we would trust in what Christ has done for us at the cross. That we would continually remind each other of the wonder and the cosmic battle of Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name.